listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Matt. As you can obviously tell, I am not Eric Barton. I don't speak nearly as fast as Eric Barton. But I did get a word of encouragement from Eric this morning. He's over in Italy. He preached a sermon this morning. And the rest of his text message was in Italian. So I really don't know if it was a word of encouragement or not. But I, I took it as such. Uh, I also got a text this morning from my daughter uh, who lives on a farm. And she gave me some words of encouragement that went like this. Hey, Dad, why do chicken coops only have two doors? Because if they had four, they'd be a sedan. All right, so. Okay, silliness, not wisdom. Our, our church this summer has been in the pursuit of wisdom. Uh, and we started in June in the book of Proverbs, as you know. Uh, that is a book of principles, not promises. And then a couple of Sundays ago, Mike Hall introduced our pursuit of wisdom in the book of Psalms. And so we're going to continue today in the book of Psalms uh, in a sermon that uh, I've entitled, True Worship is God-Focused. Now, let me be right up front. I'm in the same camp as Mike Hall. I find the Psalms to be intimidating. You've got this ancient Hebrew poetry going on, and it can be a bit challenging to interpret. But still, it is God's Word, and it's further revelation of, of who He is and, and what He has done. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about the Psalms. Mr. Lewis wrote this, There in the Psalms I find an experience, fully God-centered, asking of God no gift more urgently than his presence, the gift of himself, joyous to the highest degree and unmistakably real. What I see, so to speak, in the faces of these old poets tells me more about the God whom they and we adore. So here's how we're going to tackle this sermon. We're going to look at it on two different fronts. First, with respect to interpretation, we're going to take a page out of Dr. Hendrick's book, Living by the Book, uh, on how to study the Bible and that first step is observation. It's a very, very powerful interpretive tool, and we have a whole psalm to get through today, and so we don't have a lot of time to dig through the weeds, but I'll be frank with you and open with you. I selected this psalm because it's really pretty easy to get through, so uh, just know that. The second thing in terms of our time, we're going to start in Galatians, work through Psalm 115, and we're going to end up in the book of Matthew. So if you're kind of looking at your watch, knowing if you're going to have the long line or the short line at lunch today, uh, you can get frantic about that when we get to the book of Matthew. Um, as Eric concluded in our 20-week study in the book of Galatians, he said this about God's message of free grace. It's so easy to get off track. Can I confess to you corporately? I struggle with legalism. I do. Each day I find myself waking up in the performance mode as an employee, as a father, as a husband, as a son, a brother, a friend, as an elder. I know there's grace for that. But sometime in the beginning of chapter 3 in our study of, of Galatians, I was, I was led to Psalm 115. And this psalm has just resonated with my, my personal struggle. And I think that my struggle probably isn't a lot different than yours. And in fact, in the next 30 minutes, I might ruffle your feathers a little bit, but I know there's grace for that. As Eric said, sometimes we just don't get grace. We let self-projection, self-promotion, 
self-protection, self-provision. We let self cloud our understanding of God and of God's amazing grace. And I can think of two stumbling blocks to getting grace. Pride and idolatry. Pride is exalting oneself above God. Adult, idolatry, I've got to be careful there. Idolatry is exalting anything else above God. And as you'll see a little bit later on, they're really one of the same thing. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis dedicates a whole chapter to what he calls the great sin. Mr. Lewis wrote this. The, uh, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And as simple as it sounds that true worship is God-focused, the reality of life is that we let worship become me-focused. Another confession. I got me a me problem. I'm woefully prideful. I admit it. And I think that my legalism, I think legalism in general, stems from pride. So, let's be honest. Let's be open. How many of you are prideful? Raise your hands. Go ahead. Look around the room. Don't be shy. Okay. Well, I got me a me problem. I got him a him solution. Okay. And for those of you that didn't raise your hands, you got him too. I know you're prideful to raise your hands. I'm going to get my feather ruffling in. So, look, it's, it's easy for us to be in the frame of, of worshiping our God on Sunday mornings. But who or what do you worship on Monday morning? Or when the work week gets frantic? We're at the end of a frantic work week. Psalm 115 is, is a reminder, just a remembrance, that true worship is God-focused. So open your Bibles to Psalm 115, and, and let me just... Um, set up a contextual framework for our, our study here. This psalm is probably one that's pretty unfamiliar to you. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of study notes and commentary on it. Uh, that's why I chose it as a sermon topic. I, nobody can double-check my facts here. Um, but, but I hope you find this psalm worthy of um, meditation throughout this, this week. Um, look, it has an unknown author. The timing of it is, is not certain. There's a lot of you know, debate, and you can get into that if you want to. But I think what's important here is the position of this psalm within the book of Psalms. It, it's part of um, the book of praise, which is the fifth and final part of the Psalter. Uh, that's Psalm 107 to 150. But specifically, it's part of what they call the Egyptian Hallel. And, and that is Psalm 113 through 118. And it's a groupings of hallelujahs that were sung around Old Testament, the major Old Testament festivals, including the Passover. Matter of fact, tradition has it that during the Passover, Psalm 113 and 114 were sung before the Passover meal, 115 through 118 were sung after the Passover meal. So kind of just lock that in your brains as we get towards the end of the sermon. Now, what I observe when I look at this whole psalm is I see four parts. When you look at the grammatical structure of it, there are four parts to Psalm 115. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at each part and draw an application of true worship from each. And I think you'll also note right up front that this is what you call a communal psalm. It was sung in community. It has you know, parts that, that have participation in it. Uh, but what we open with in verses 1 through 8 is a congregational praise of God doing so in a mindful manner, calling to mind the entrapments 
the snares of pride and idolatry. So open your Bibles and let's look at the first part, what I call the give all the glory to God sandwich, with the first layer of bread being a call to mind of the pitfall of pride. Verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Observe right away, we got first person, plural, objective case. That's the word us, right? Something, we the congregation are not to be the object of something. Secondly, not to us, O Lord, Yahweh. Immediately, the congregation is acknowledging their dependence upon God. And then we see again, not to us. Repetition. Remember, Hebrew poetry is noted for its terseness of language. And so repetition carries significance and weight in meaning. Pride is a big deal. All right, let's go on. Continuing in verse 1. But to your name give glory. Again, let's make some observations. But, contrasting statement for those of you who are students of Hebrew poetry, this is antithetic parallelism, drawing a contrast. Observe also that glory is to be given to Yahweh, to his name, to the person who God is. So we're already starting to formulate very early on in the opening congregational praise that glory is of God, Glory is from God. Glory is for God. Glory is not of man, nor for man, nor from man. Over in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I'm a big fan of reading other people's sermons. I don't like to give them. I like to read others. I hope Eric hears that on the uh, recording. Uh, Just joking, Eric. Um, Moses is just a great author, and if you read in Deuteronomy his sermons that he preaches to the Israelites before they cross over into the promised land, there's just great messages in there. And here's what Moses said, and I hope you kind of see um, him talking to the, the people and to be mindful of the pitfall of pride. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He, not you, he will destroy them and subdue them before you. And then he says this in verse 4, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land? No, that would be pride. Moses then says, the reason is because of the wickedness of these nations. And later he says, and that he may confirm, that is that God may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers. We have a God of promise. And Moses concludes this little section with this, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people, as are we, a stubborn people, a prideful people. Glory is not for us, but glory is for God. If we continue in verse 1, it says this, Glory is due God for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And now we start to see that the layers of the meat and cheese and stuff get, get on top of the, 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 the piece of bread 
that is the mindfulness of, of pride. The psalmist goes on. He uses now rhetoric pose in verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And the congregation sings, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. Our God is sovereign. He's over man. He's over man's idols. And he does all that he pleases. I think there's a, a version out there, and I didn't remember which one it was, but it goes something like, um, all of which he desired he made. I think that's right. All of which he desired he made. And if you were to remember our walk during the Advent through the Gospel of John, or at least the first part of the Gospel of John, um, John recorded these words, very similar language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Our God deserves all the glory. Before we go on to, to talk about idols, I'm going to play a little game with you, if you don't mind. This is something our family does at family gatherings. We play a game called Riddle Me This, Batman. And here's how it goes. I will give a riddle, and, or somebody would give a riddle in the family, then others would shout out the answer, and, of course, they would win a prize. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Riddle me this, Batman. I am an odd number, but you take away one letter, I'm even. What number am I? It's the number seven. Take away the letter S. Or, riddle me this, Batman. How do you divide 17 apples amongst eight people? You make applesauce. Okay? You guys got it? Got it? Here we go. You guys participate. Answer this. Riddle me this, Batman. What has mouths but do not speak? Eyes but do not see. Ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. Hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And throats, but do not mutter. Ah, I heard it. Somebody read their Bible. Verse 4. Idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then for the next couple of verses, you see what I just put forth in the form of a riddle. We saw repetition. We saw parallelism. We saw rhetoric pose. And here we see... A riddle. No, it's not a riddle. I made that up. Um, it is a form of sarcasm. You actually see the same language over in Psalm 135. So apparently this was some sort of um, familiar praise to them. But what I want you to see is verse 8. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust them. You see, pride and idolatry are really the same thing at the very core. They're an interwoven concept. At the core of idolatry is a form of, of self-worship, self-exaltation. Instead of man being the image of God, idolatry is man making an image into a God. Even, even for the atheist, at their very core is a form of, of self-worship. I like what uh, Ravi Zacharias had to say. And he cites three modern-day philosophers, all of which are atheists. He says this, These three philosophers, whom also embraced atheism, recognized that in the absence of God, there was no transcendent meaning beyond one's own self-interest, pleasures, or taste. So let's just kind of look in summary here, one through eight, and just draw two observations. Number one, God reigns from heaven. Our God is all-powerful. He's alive. He does. Idols, 
They're earthly. They're powerless. They're dead. They do nothing. Second, observe that those who make them and those who trust in them are like them. You see, the conclusion here from 1 through 8 in the opening praise is this. Worship is not neutral. Whether you worship the one true and living God or you worship an idol including yourself, you're either going to worship one or the other. And it just, to me, is just a great mindful way to keep in mind that all glory is due God, that true worship is God-focused. Let's move on to the second part of the four parts here in, in the book of Psalms. This is a, a call to faith, a responsive part of the psalm. And we, we will, you'll notice a, a shift in, in the grammar going from uh, first person, plural, objective, to a combination of second person and third person. And so the message here, verses 9 through 11, is this. It's the truth of the gospel. It's faith alone. Think back to our study of Galatians in, in chapter uh, well, just think about the, 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 our study in Galatians. Remember, Paul went through uh, that area we now know as, as Turkey. And after he left, soon after that, the, the, the Judaizers came in behind him and started distorting the message of the gospel. It was faith plus something, faith plus some aspect of the law or faith plus the law. And that's nothing more than a form of, of pride or idolatry. When you think that you need to add something to the work of Christ on the cross, that you need to do something to make it sufficient, that's a form of pride, idolatry. Well, in chapter 3 of, of Galatians, Paul writes, he quotes Moses from Genesis, and he writes this about faith alone. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then Paul goes on to speak that the law avails a person nothing. There is no profit in the law. There's no profit in idols. What a contrast. God gave us the law, but not as an idol. God hates idols. As Paul pointed out, the law does not profit. It points our way. It was our tutor that pointed us to Christ. For the Israelites, the, the law didn't determine entrance into God's promises. Faith did. The law never gained one entrance into heaven. For them or for us, it's all about faith. So let's go back to Psalm 115 and pick up in 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And following each one of those statements, the congregation responds, he is their help and their shield. Now let's be, be very clear here. This is Old Testament. It's for Israel. It's not for the church. But let me just draw an analogy for you regarding the church. O church, the body of Christ, trust in the Lord. O ministers and leaders of the church, trust in the Lord. O you believers who are suffering in trials, trust in the Lord. See that part where it says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. I kind of conclude as we read verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? This kind of taunting that he's really speaking to those Israelites who are in their walk facing some sort of, of trial. It's a call to trust. Note this also, that it's a communal response and that the congregation is saying he is their help and their shield. He will help his people. He will protect his people. And so I ask you, in your walk of faith, have you come to the point 
in your life where you comprehend this simple reality that you are helpless, and I mean completely helpless without God. And I'm not saying that means you go be a sluggard. Eric covered that at the beginning uh, in Proverbs, and it's vanity to assume that we're not helpless without God. Another observation here from this, this group of, of passages, and, and I think this is important. Uh, just observe the congregation's confidence in their response. It, it's affirmative. God is their help. The congregation didn't say God will be their help or God is their help on the Sabbath or God is their help when they obey the law. It said God is their help. He is their shield. Conclusion. The first part of the psalm talked about worship is not neutral. The second part here, worship indicates the object of one's confidence. If confidence lies in yourself, you're going to tend to worship yourself. If confidence lies in your bank account or your IRA, you're going to tend to worship money. But if your confidence is in the Lord, if you trust God, you will tend to worship your Lord. Because true worship is God-focused. Let's move on to... Um, the third of four parts of the psalm. Now we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 13. And, and again, the congregation, you'll see that the change in, in grammatical language, the Lord has remembered us. We go back to first-person plural objective case, and so we can see the, the uh, separation here. The congregation is singing, and this is an acknowledgment of God's grace. Here in the Old Testament, we see God's grace. And I just love the first part of this. Verse 12 opens this way. The Lord has remembered us. The Lord is calling us to mind. Flip over to Psalm 1, um, 139, if you've got your Bibles handy. There in verse 17, David records these words. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. How precious. The greatness of God's thought towards you. Um, and I don't remember which Bible has it. Some, uh, some interpretations render that Hebrew word for how precious is, how incomprehensible. And, and I like that because if you read on in verse 18, if I could count them, they are more than the sand. I can't comprehend the greatness and the number of thoughts God has for me, God has for you. So just, just think about that. God is thinking about you in countless ways right now, this very second. Are you in need of attention? Man, the God Almighty is thinking of you in numerous ways right now. Do you need affirmation? God's got that covered. God is thinking of you in countless ways. Let's continue on in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. Observation, he, God, verb, will bless us, the object. Okay, that's pretty simple. Second, though, observe that within the context of this, this whole psalm, the psalmist is... Um, painting a picture of our God. Loyalty, faithfulness, truthfulness, sovereignty, help, shield, and here, God is the source of all blessing. Our God gives. Our God gives freely. His grace, his grace is free. Observe this, the verb tense, will bless. This does not say that God has blessed or God is blessing. It says God will bless. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless in the here and now, but the psalmist is speaking to promise. Our God is a covenant God, and he has promised, and the psalmist is speaking confidently that our God will fulfill all that he has promised. The ultimate promise being Jesus Christ. And, and look, we on this side of the cross, 
get to live in the blessing of the first advent, but there's still blessing to come in the second advent in Jesus and, and eternity beyond. We worship a God of grace. And he continues with the parallelism that he used before in verses 9 through 12 with Israel, house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. He says, he will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. But he adds something. The end of verse 13 says, both the small and the great, literally both the little ones and the big ones. Make no mistake, this is not some sort of prosperity gospel. Now, I would argue with you that grace is probably the, the greatest prosperity you would ever receive. Uh, there's no greater prosperity than to live under God's grace. Faith hastens blessing, both present and future. And I want you to recall, as we think about this, that God's economy is not the world's economy. Your present blessing may not be in the form of a worldly blessing. My dear friend, Jim Phillips, he's a deacon here at uh, Bethel downtown, has been suffering for a long time with various physical ailments, and he's also gone through a lot of other trials in his life. But if you talk to Jim Phillips, you'll see a man of exceeding joy. You see, God has blessed him. And I love what, what Jim had to say about his, his situation. He said this, I have been abundantly blessed in the midst of the pit. His words, not mine. God has rewarded this man's faith with greater faith. So what's the conclusion of the third part of our psalm? The first part was worship is not neutral. The second part is that worship indicates the object of one's confidence. The third part is this, we worship a God of grace. He will bless you according to his grace and within the realm of his economy, which is the better economy. We worship God of grace. And then the last section is this, the fourth and final section. It's a priestly blessing. Again, we see a change in grammatical structure here. It's a priestly blessing. It's a benediction. Verses 14 and 15. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. And, and the first one there, the first blessing, really should, you ought to, what ought to come to your mind is, is the first blessing of the Bible when God said, be fruitful and multiply. See, God's blessing gives increase. It, it may be family, it may be wealth, but more importantly, it's a call for increase in spiritual blessing, a call for increase in wisdom, a call for increase in knowledge of him in his grace. Verse 15, that blessing ought to look familiar from, again from Genesis when the high priest Melchizedek blessed Abram. He said this, Blessed be Abram the, by the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Continuing in the benediction in verse um, 16, it says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens. Again, the, the, the leader here is just acknowledging God's sovereignty. It's rightly recognizing who God is. But the earth, and, and I will tell you, I like the translation that, that takes the word but and has and. So, and the earth he has given to the children of men. Now, this is not God has given up control. God is sovereign over all. But in an act of divine fellowship 
God has made man steward over the earth. And in this, God has expressed his desire to fellowship with man. Therefore, as earthly stewards, we should worship him while we can, while we're alive. From the earthly perspective, only those who are alive can praise him on the earth. Sure, when we're dead and we're in heaven, we're going to praise God in heaven. But while we're on earth, we need to praise him with our mouths. Read, read what it said, our mouths. Sorry, mouths, that's not a word. Read what it says in verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. I don't think this is referring to unbelievers. I think the psalmist is just making the simple point that our praise not only glorifies God, it demonstrates God's glory to others while on the earth. When we die, our voices on earth will be silenced. And why do we want to praise God? Verse 18, because it blesses him. But we will bless the Lord. And in typical wisdom phraseology from this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. So here's my takeaway from the fourth part of this. In five verses, we see the name of God six times. Yahweh is God's revealed name. Your version will have Lord all in capital letters. That's Yahweh. I am that I am. The name that expresses his immediacy, his presence, his accessibility. Our God is a God of fellowship. So, Psalm 115, it's a reminder about true worship. That it's not neutral. It indicates the object of our confidence that we worship a God of grace, and that we worship God of fellowship. So like I said, I want to wrap this up by going to the book of Matthew. So turn with me over to the New Testament, if you don't mind, to the book of Matthew. And I really wanted to tie something from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I started reflecting on the life of Peter. Because I can relate to Peter. I find myself bulldozing my way through life pridefully in the pursuit of a life of faith, failing to see the fullness of God, drifting away from grace and into legalism. So think about Peter. Peter rebuked Jesus. He took Jesus aside and told Jesus, he told God incarnate that he was wrong and that Peter was not going to let Christ suffer and be killed. Well, that's me and my self-projection. Peter argued amongst the disciples, who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, that's me and my self-promotion. Peter denied Jesus on the night he was betrayed. That's me and my self-protection. He fell asleep while Jesus prayed, even though Jesus asked Peter to stay awake for his sake. That's me and my self-provision. Peter slipped into legalism. Paul had to get in his grill about it, too. Well, that's me. So that's why Psalm 115 just reminds me of the reality. It's all God's glory. So turn to chapter 26 in the book of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 17. <clears throat> Very familiar passage. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, 
he reclined at table with 12. Now, I want to be very, very clear with you right here. What I'm about to say is not in the Bible, okay? All right? But go back to what I said early on when I set up the contextual framework of Psalm 115. Tradition holds that Psalm 113 and 114 would have been sung at this time. Okay? So it's likely, perhaps possible, that that's what they did at this point in time. Go down to verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then verse 30 says this, And when they had sung a hymn, and so I wonder, I wonder, did they sing Psalm 115? With Jesus leading the pastoral parts. How weighty this would have been to Peter following Christ's ascension. You see, in Peter I see my wrongful and prideful ways, but in Christ I see his grace, his love for me, his restoration, his fellowship, his desire for fellowship with me. And in Psalm 115, I see rightful worship. Worship that's not neutral. Worship that indicates the object of one's confidence. Worship in a God of grace and fellowship. The wisdom of Psalm 115 makes clear that true worship is God-focused. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be given glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are sovereign ruler over the heavens and the earth. You are a God of mercy, love, and grace. And we confess, Lord, that we are a prideful, prideful people. People that exalt themselves above you, O Lord. We use words of death instead of life. We play the sluggard. We lack self-control. Lord, we ask that you grant us your wisdom so we may walk in your ways. We confess, Lord, and, and we ask your forgiveness, knowing that we are already forgiven by the blood of the true Passover lamb, your son, Jesus. We thank you for that blood, Lord. It's the bridge that connects that giant chasm between your holiness and, and our, our sinfulness. It is and always has been about your perfect work of grace, Lord. And just may we be reminded this day of the, the, the simple opening to Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be given glory. And God, I just I pray that if there is someone in this room that does not know you as the God of grace, God of fellowship, that your Holy Spirit move in them this day, right now, to just trust in you, to have that confidence in you. And, Lord, for the rest of us, uh, my prayer is this, that we be mindful that worship is not neutral, that you alone are God, that worship indicates 
the object of our confidence, that you alone are our God and we trust you, that you are a God of grace and a God of fellowship. May we be people that not only worship you for a few hours on Sunday morning, but we worship you like the psalmist says, now and forevermore. Lord, we just pray these things through your spirit in the name of Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.